Amen, and uh, welcome to a gathering of City Church. It is uh, my great pleasure this morning to be here with you uh, to worship and to pursue this revival of joyful worship. If uh, you're one of our big kids in here, uh, go ahead and head towards the back. Uh, you're more than welcome to go. We're going to have that gathering downstairs. Y'all will be learning something very similar to us. Uh, for the rest of us, after this max, uh, mass exodus is completed, we're going to be uh, back in the first chapter of Ephesians. We're going to be in verses... Uh, Uh, 5 through 10. So turn there with me. Join there with me. And as you're turning, um, I had an experience this week that I I wonder if it's something that maybe you have also experienced in your life. Um, It was almost like um, those times where you hear a song that you haven't heard in a long time, you forgot that it existed, or maybe a uh, meal that you tasted that you are tasting again, and it brings back memories. For me, it was a book. Uh, it was a book that I've read over a decade ago that our uh, elder team is actually reading uh, together. It's a book by uh, a counselor named, a Christian counselor named Paul Tripp, and it, the name of the book is uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And there was a story that he told in this book that was really helpful for me because it was almost like I got acquainted with uh, something that I had forgotten a long time ago. I remember reading this example 10 years ago and it landing in my heart and then I forgot about it, but it was almost more powerful. It was almost more nostalgic to go back to this example. And so I don't normally start with uh, other people's examples. Uh, That's not a great way to start a sermon, but it was something that really applied to where we're going this morning. So I wanted to tell you the story that he uh, tells us there. And it's a story about a little kid named Johnny. Paul Tripp, if you don't know this, uh, is a Christian counselor, but he also helped start a small Christian school. And at the very beginning of small anything, everybody has got to lend a hand. So he was also teaching kindergarten at this school. One Friday, a mom had asked if right after school she could use the classroom to have a a birthday party for her little girl. And so after all of the kids had gone out for recess or whatever else, and they were returning to the classroom, it looked like a birthday bomb had exploded in the room. There were uh, balloons in balloons, there were streamers, there was glitter, there were uh, little gift bags on every single one of the tables for each of the students, and there was a mountain of gifts uh, stored in the corner. And the story uh, about Johnny, Uh, is not him as the birthday kid, but him as a participant in the party. You see, Johnny uh, had come to this party and looked at the small uh, gift bag that was laying on his desk, and he was looking at the mountain of the presents. He was looking back at the small gift bag and then back at the presents, and soon he started to grumble. Soon he started uh, garnering more and more attention as a tantrum kind of mounted and swelled within this little kid. And soon he was stealing the glory from the birthday girl. He was actually stealing the attention. He was demanding that he was the center of attention. And what Paul Tripp uh, says is that there was this uh, loving mom, this truthful mom that went over, scooted his chair to look him directly in the eyes and say something very simple but very profound. She said, Johnny, this is not your party. Johnny, this is not your party. Now that may not seem on the surface to be a very profound statement, but it was something that was very moving to me because of the insight that uh, Tripp pulled out of this. He said this, he said, Johnny will never be able to enjoy his inclusion in the party if he demands to be the center of attention. 
Here's why this was convicting for me. Here's why even 10 years later, I heard this story again and remind, was reminded of the way that it impacted me long ago. And that is because it's convicting to my soul. In the confidence of my own mind and the secret thoughts of my own mind in my actions, I too demand that this entire life is my party, that I be the center of attention. I think and act like it's all about me, that I am the center of life's party. I wonder if, uh, if any of you, uh, just thinking about the uh, secret thoughts of your mind, may resonate with that at some level. It seems as though our thoughts all the time are kind of geared towards placing ourselves in the limelight, our, uh, ourselves in the best light, ourselves at the center of attention, and here we are with this uh, amazing truth being spoken over us, that we are not able to enjoy our inclusion in a party if we demand that we are the center of attention. The irony, of course, is that living this way actually makes me miserable. To, to, uh, to spend all of my time thinking about how I ought to be the center of attention or the smartest person in the room or the loudest person and garner that attention actually makes me miserable. And that's because no narcissist who has ever lived has ever been content. Even narcissist himself faded away there next to the pond. When we do go unnoticed, we withhold love for others. Our entitlement actually causes us to covet and resent and lust after the things that other people have. Our desire, even for good things like compassion, our desire to serve others and show compassion to other people is normally like strangled and choked out by these kind of deceitful and wicked thoughts of a desire that somebody might notice the things that we are doing, notice the ways that we are serving, notice the compassion that we were having, notice how woke we are and give us back some of that glory. Maybe you're wondering if this is you. I'll tell you as a sufferer of this uh, disposition myself, there are a few telltale signs. If you're a person who struggles with bitterness towards other people who have things that you don't have, if you seek isolation to actually retreat from people that, uh, that maybe uh, haven't given you what you think that you deserve. Maybe you have a fantasy life that uh, hopes upon hope for really unrealistic things that God has not given you. Maybe you struggle with discontentedness, sleeplessness, or even anger towards others. Sawyer and I have actually uh, made it our mission to not allow that to happen uh, with our kids. It seems at uh, some level like this mission impossible, uh, but we are actually fairly intentional about it. You may have heard people say from time to time, it's not all about you. We've actually kind of co-opted that phrase in our family. If you are around our house for very long, you will hear us saying this to our kids. Yes, in a joking way, we're not being too, but also deathly seriously, Jackson, it's not all about you, buddy. Ryan, it's not all about you. Henry, it's not all about you. Give that toy back to your sister. Don't, don't demand that other people give you that attention. But when we do this, there is inside of me, at least, I won't speak for Sawyer, a twinge of hypocrisy. And the reason why is because I recognize the Johnny in myself. And I want to raise my kids 
to have some sense of the virtue of humility in them, a a sense of that virtue that it was not mine, that I was not taught. I want to give that to them. I want to convince their hearts of it. Why is it so important for us to be reminded that it's not all about us? Why is it important for you to be reminded that it's not all about you or to push back on this motivation, this heart motivation? Here's the reason why, and we actually discovered it last week with Will, and that is the glorious truth that God is throwing a party. God's throwing a party. God is telling a grand story throughout all of history. And here's the best news of all of it. You're invited to the party. Your name is actually being written into the story. That's the good news of the gospel, that God is throwing a party. He's writing a grand story, and you're invited. How do we know? How do we know about this invite? Uh, Paul through the book of Ephesians, in verses 3 and 4 that we covered last week, says specifically that he didn't just bless us. What did he say? What does it say there in verse 4? He chose us. He chose us. We actually got an invite. We got a, a, a personal um, uh, concierge that ordered a, uh, a ride for us to come all the way to the party. God did everything that he needed to do to choose to invite you into that party. And verses 5 through 10 that we're going to read here just now talks more about this party that we're invited to the plan and the path and the purpose for this party. Join with me in verse 5, just before verse 5. There's very important two words that precede verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot here. In fact, in some ways, this passage, uh, every single phrase seems like a new unfolding of this plan that God is doing. It, it's, it's almost like there's this red carpet that is being unfurled out in front of us or a, a, a tide where wave upon wave is coming in one after the other. And all of them seem to be just separated by comma marks, but they're all moving in the same direction. They are all dominoes leading from this chosen point through the rest of the story. And here's what we find. We find in this passage that God has a plan, a path, and a purpose to redeem you. God has a plan and a path and a purpose to redeem you. And here's, here's uh, the weird thing that I'm going to do this morning. I've never done like a two-part kind of uh, a thesis statement. Here's the, here's the full thesis statement. God has a plan a path and a purpose to redeem you, but it's not about you. It's not all about you. That's the second part, and we're going to see why this is such good news. Join me in verse 5. God's redemption plan. So if he has this uh, plan for redemption, it's a redemption plan. He says, in love, he predestined you. God has a predestined plan 
When did he initiate that plan? If you look back in verse 4, it says that God the Father chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. When did he inaugurate his plan for redemption? He did it before he even started the earth. Before the foundation of the world, he started this redemption plan that includes you. Why? He kind of weaves this answer together. If you, if you see almost these uh, three words throughout the passage, uh, this adoption, this forgiveness, and this unity at the very end, if you see those as kind of the three main points as the plan, the path, and the purpose, he actually weaves the rest of it together with these amazing phrases that we, we probably are tempted a little bit, if you're like me, to just kind of read over. Verse 5 says that it, it was according to the purpose of his will. Verse 7 says that it was according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 10, if you've kind of it maybe even faded out in the midst of even reading those short verses, come back to me in verse 10. Verse 10, it says that it was a plan for the fullness of time. We get this idea if you're reading all of these things woven together that God has a plan. He's up to something, and it sounds pretty magnificent. He's got a plan for that. He's the one with the plan. He's the one with the all-encompassing redemption plan for you. And it's lavish. It's rich. It's gracious. It's glorious. These are the words that he uses to describe his plan, and we see that plan as being good. However, the Deep goodness of the predestined plan is not always easy for us to see. I'm going to say that one more time. The, the, the predestined, the goodness of that predestined plan is not always easy for us to see or receive. Let me tell you why. I think verse 5, as I was studying it this week and as I was thinking back on uh, my testimony, my personal testimony, my sophomore year of high school, I think that God initiated a lifelong love of him by the hate of verse 5. I did not like verse 5. Now, I won't bury the lead. I don't, I don't hate verse 5 anymore, but I did. There was, I had a problem with it. There was one word that seemed to uh, stick out in my mind that God used for me to stumble over, and it changed my life. And I'm not sure today that I would be a Christian if he had not helped me deal with my hate of this verse. It says that he predestined. Maybe that's a hard word for you. You read that word there, and it's a hard word for a self-centered Johnny like me. I don't like the idea that I'm not in control. I want to be responsible for my own story. I want to be the hero of my own story. I want to be my own salvation, my own savior. I want to be the center of the party. And the idea that a God would take the center stage of my story and be my hero and choose me made me angry in my youth. The idea that he has some predestined plan that I have no control over really got underneath my skin. And actually, on the same tubing trip that I met my wife, there was a uh, another young woman who had a huge impact on me that corrected me about this. She was like, no, no, no you're wrong that, there, that God's not in control of your salvation. She directed me right to this verse. And I wanted to almost, my, my heart wanted to retreat in some ways and say, no, 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 that word is not there in Scripture. But ultimately, 
It allowed me to be confronted with God's love. It says at the beginning of this passage, in love he did this. In love he predestined. In love he chose us before the foundation of the world. And what happened to my hate of that word was that it melted away into joy. And it melted away into joy at this realization. I want to share it with you this morning. If I was to be my own savior, if I was to be my own hero, if I was to be my own God, the only thing that I would have predestined myself for, the only thing that I would have chosen, the only thing that I would have predestined myself for is an eternity without God. I know that for me in my own heart. Maybe that's something that God wants you to wrestle with and he wants you to like come through on the other side with a great and glorious vision of his amazing redemptive plan for you just by struggling with that one word. But for me, I can tell you that I know in my heart of hearts that if I had the power to control my own story, if I had the power to be my own savior, I would have chosen an eternity without God. I would have chosen hell. That's what an eternity without God is. An eternity of God, uh, an eternity without God is hell. That's what I would have chosen. But the joy comes in because the story that God is writing, the plan uh, that He, the party that He is planning, Christian, He's telling you exactly what kind of story He's predestining for you. Do you get that? Look at verse 5. He's telling you the exact kind of story that he is predestining for you, and it's an adoption story. It says, in love, he predestined us not for uh, working in coal mines, not for uh, struggle forever. He's, He's predestining you for adoption as sons through whom? Through Jesus Christ. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. The God of this universe, if you are in Christ, has predestined a redemption for you by bringing you into his family. In love, God the Father, the Father of this entire universe, through his Son, is bringing and redeeming you from one family to another family. Maybe you didn't even realize that you were a part of another family before God was welcoming you, inviting, predestining you into his family. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 8 verse 42 said, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from the father and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. To some, those are really harsh words. Those are really harsh words. You, you have, maybe you've never even considered that you are part of a family before. And, and Jesus is actually using really strong words to say that the devil was your father. To some, though, it is a joyful thing because uh, to some, your predestined redemption into God's family is joyful because your childhood was hell. Or maybe your spiritual life was hell. You know exactly who your father was before. But for all of us, for all of us, regardless of your experience, here is what this verse is telling you. This verse is telling us that our predestined redemption into God's family is glorious because we've known the misery and dysfunction of being part of another family. Your story Your redemption story is an adoption story. 
Hear me, church. Christian, your predestined story is an adoption story. It's being invited into God's forever family. In the car yesterday, uh, Ryan and Henry were having one of those conversations in the back seat that you kind of don't pay attention to until they say a few words. And uh, I dropped into the middle of their conversation, and they were both agreeing that it was about time for Sawyer and I to adopt a girl. They want another kiddo, and they have decided that that kiddo is going to be another daughter for us. Uh, I didn't even tell Sawyer. She's finding out now. That's their plans for us. So that's what they wanted. But the, the way that they were talking about it was so, you know, honestly, it would be offensive if it wasn't so innocent and kind of cute. Because the way that they were talking about it was as if it was easy to adopt. But Ryan literally said, uh, well, we would just go to the orphanage. That's how these things happen, right? I mean, and for a seven-year-old girl, that's how these things happen. They want an adopted daughter, and they think that it's easy. You just head down to the adoption agency, the orphanage, and that's how it happens. But we know that that's not how it happens. It's not easy. In fact, Ryan, our daughter, I was a little surprised because for some reason I had forgotten that she wasn't old enough to remember Sawyer and I spending years painstakingly planning and waiting for our adoption before Henry asserted himself into the world. We had planned this for a long time. We had waited. Our hearts were like... uh, I mean, they were pregnant and heavy, but also joyfully hopeful. There was a sacrifice that was made. There was planning that was in order. And that doesn't even, that doesn't even touch the kind of planning and path and purpose that God has for his redemptive purpose and adoption for you. God the Father's perfect predestined redemption plan will not be changed. It won't be thwarted. Henry won't come along and interrupt it. He he has this sure plan that is going to happen, and it's great and glorious for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the end, the God of this universe was so filled with grace towards you that these passages here in Ephesians says he chose you, he predestined you, but he didn't just uh, choose you and predestine you for adoption. He did it as as sons. Unless we uh, maybe get offended at the non-gender inclusivity, here's what he's really after here. He's saying that uh, he uh, predestined you to be an heir to have an inheritance. Ben's going to be talking about this next week, that there is an inheritance waiting for us, that we are adopted into this family and we get all of the rights, all of the privileges of being in his family as adopted sons and daughters. All of the robes of righteousness, all of the eternal inheritance, all of the boundless affections, Tim Keller uh, uses an illustration to talk about like the difference between like being a son or daughter and not uh, by talking about a president. Uh, all of the chiefs of staff, you could have every letter behind your name and be like groping and, and, and trying as hard as you can to get a meeting with the president of the United States. And you might get a minute, five minutes or something, but there is no time in which the son or daughter of a president couldn't rush into the Oval Office and have the attention, the affections of their father. That's what it's like to be a son or daughter of the most powerful thing in this universe beyond comprehension. You actually have access to him. 
Will and I were talking about this earlier this week. I want you to imagine that uh, you wanted time with the president. And so uh, as soon as the president was uh, walking off of the plane, you started to run after the president. That's going to end very poorly for you. But if you're a son or daughter, if you're a son or daughter and you're making your way towards your father, it doesn't matter what kind of power he has, he sweep you up. You're there. You have every affection, every right, every privilege of a son or daughter. That's his plan for you. But he doesn't just have a plan. Many of us have plans that we don't execute on. God doesn't just have a plan. He has a path for redemption. Join me in verse 7. This is God's redemption path. He has a a redemption plan. Now he has a a redemption path. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. His plan is to make the sons of Satan into his own adopted sons. And he's doing that by gloriously predestining them But how is he doing that? How is he actually going about accomplishing that? How is he actually adopting us? Adoption is no easy thing. Uh, Regardless of what Ryan might think, you don't just go down to the orphanage. It takes uh, planning. It takes sacrifice. In the case of our Heavenly Father, his love may motivate him, but his righteousness actually restrains him from adoption. Do you know that? His love motivates him towards adoption, but his righteousness actually restrains him from adoption of us. How could that be true? How how could God be constrained in any way? Romans 6 verse 11 tells us both the good and the bad of this. It says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin. Before Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses. So shall God ad- adopt the dead into his kingdom? Shall uh, God take uh, corpses or, or, or maybe even at best zombies to live in his forever kingdom with him? He can't do that. He's actually restrained at some level by his righteousness. He can't do it. But the good news is is that Romans 6 verse 11 doesn't just say that you must consider yourself dead to sin. It says that you must also consider yourself alive in God, alive to God in Jesus Christ. What does it take for us to go from death into life? That's the greatness of the gospel. And verse 7 in Ephesians tells us that we have redemption through Jesus' blood. And we are forgiven our trespasses. This is, this is the crucial element of the gospel that you have to get. You must get that there is forgiveness of sins. If you think that the God of this universe can just invite you into his kingdom without planning or without sacrifice, you are sorely mistaken. There must be a path for your redemption that God is actually planning out, painstakingly, sacrificially planning out. And he tells us what it is. It is by the shedding of Jesus' blood. He sent Jesus to carry out this plan, to walk the path that God the Father had laid out before him. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come. 
That last little part isn't something that maybe strikes many of us, that the blessing of Abraham might come. What's happening in Galatians, in that verse that I just read, is affirming what is happening in Ephesians, that through Jesus' blood, through his death on a cross, that we are actually adopted, that we are God's chosen people. Verse 29 of Galatians 3 says that if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Did you get what just happened there? Galatians is tying itself to Ephesians and saying that if you are in Christ, if Jesus shed his blood for you, that you can actually be adopted because you are in the same adoption that God started with Abraham way back in the day when he went to this man Abraham and just said, I will make you a chosen race. I'm going to make you great. Father Abraham has many sons, many sons. They have Father Abraham. This is what it's talking about. We get adopted into his family as God's chosen people. When Jesus was killed on the cross, he took the judgment for all of our trespasses, our sinful offense to the Father. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of uh, the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews is saying that it was very costly for you to actually enter into secured and eternal redemption. That again, Jesus secured our eternal redemption by his own blood shed on the cross. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, First Peter says. God has a plan. He also has a redeeming path, but that path led straight up the hill of Calvary to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you get that? God the Father planned our adoption and he gave a path to Jesus and that path led straight up the hill of Calvary that he might purchase that adoption by his own blood. It is with thankful and joy-filled hearts that we receive his invitation to the party of his kingdom. We can simply no longer insist that we are worthy to attend our own party and demand undue attention in our own party if Jesus is the one who paid it all. We, we can't do it. We can't demand that attention. We can't command that it is our own party. So if it's not all about you, here's the ultimate question that I want to land on this morning. What is it all about? What is God's purpose? I guess what we're asking here this morning is the age-old question of why. And in verse 10, we see the answer to this question. God's redemption purpose. His plan, his path has led us now to his purpose. He says this in verse 10. His plan for the fullness of time was this, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here's the truth, beloved. There's no more fundamentally human question than the question why. I mean, even from birth. 
I, I mean, we've had three kids now, and I'm pretty sure they're not all in the same order, but like their first five words are mama, dada, no, is pretty common, snack, and why. And it's why for like the next 10 years, it's just why. But we only get more sophisticated with our, our questions. We only get more sophisticated with the ways that we ask the question, why? And I think that what, uh, what God wants to do is actually answer some of these things. Why am I going through this? Why do others have this? Why do loved ones always abandon me? Why is my marriage so dissatisfying? Why am I here? Why do I exist? These are not questions that, uh, that, that only unbelievers struggle with. All of us at some level daily ask the question, why? Why am I here? Why do I exist? <clears throat> at a fundamental level, even the question why assumes that something is broken, something is obscured, something is unknown. I'll prove it to you. Can you imagine uh, Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden? They're living in perfect community with God the Father. They have every uh, need that they have uh, is provided for perfectly. Can you imagine them asking the question, why? Maybe a few things. I wonder why God did this in such a glorious way. Uh, why, why does it work like this? Those are those may be questions prior to the fall, but the kind of questions that we most often entertain with the question of why is evidence that there is actually something broken that we are experiencing. For some of us, even that question, why do I exist, runs really deep in us. We wonder, why am I here? Would it be better if I wasn't here? Would the people around me actually be better off somehow if I wasn't here? I've heard, I've heard that question three times in the last week, three times in the last seven days, people struggling with some level of question, why am I here? Would other people be better if I wasn't here? I really honestly believe that God is answering it for us here in Ephesians. I think that the Spirit through Paul is writing to the Ephesians to seek to give us a glimpse of his purpose. So if you've ever asked these questions, whether you're a Christian or not, what is the meaning of all of this? Look here, in verses uh, 8 and verses 10, we get two clues to what this purpose is. The first one in verse 10, we've already read it, it's to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. It's to unite things together. The second that we see not just in verse 6, but we see it in verses 12 and verses 14 is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. This is recited throughout scripture that God is due praise. And what I think is that God the Father has a plan to redeem us by forgiving us our sins through the blood of Jesus and adopt us into his forever family for two reasons. Because he's in the process of uniting all things together in him and he's doing all of that to the praise of his glory. Do you see this? He's uniting all things together and he's doing it for his own glory. The effect of sin in this world is actually entropy. 
You know the word entropy? It's where everything is literally coming apart at the seams. Everything is winding down. Nothing gets additional energy. Sin has so affected things that things decay, disintegrate, death. What God is after is actually to redeem all things by uniting them in him. The effects of sin in this world are entropy. Everything wears out. Everything winds down. Everything pulls apart. Everything disintegrates. Humans from God, humans from other humans. Sin divides marriages. It puts enmity between races. It puts wars between nations. Hate, oppression, death, decay, deception, destruction, all because of sin. And God's turning it inside out. At the cross, Jesus, who was forever unified with the Father, enters into the dividedness of all mankind. Jesus, for the first time in all of eternity, was separated from his Father. That that division that you feel... The news stories out of this week about race and the division that is happening in our society that we cannot ignore, all of that is the effects of sin. But God is unifying. In Jesus Christ, Jesus actually experiences not just a taste, but as much as he could have possibly handled God the Father for the first time, separated himself from the Son so that Jesus could have the sins of the whole world put on him? Why would the Father pave a path of blood to the cross? Why would Jesus endure this separation? Because in the taking of the separation that we experience and deserve forever, he creates a path for unity. If you long for unity, if you long for justice, God the Father is unifying all things together in Jesus Christ. I was asked earlier this week if we are a woke church. I was asked if we were a woke church. And I I, I didn't give an answer necessarily to that question, but I'll give you my answer. My answer is that we as a church would not be woke as if we just simply uh, woke up from something. I don't want for us to be a woke church. I want for us to be a living church. I want for us to be alive in Jesus Christ. I don't want to simply wake up from some dream. I want to be alive in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the one who is unifying all things together. He's taking every bad thing and turning it inside out and working it for the praise of his glory. Jesus is the one that is doing that. I hope that we can understand what he is doing as he takes this path of purpose towards unifying all things. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace, beloved, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is reigning mankind with God. He's reuniting humans with other humans. He is restoring everything that is broken. Is that good news? Beloved, he's restoring all things. He's redeeming all things. He's uniting all things. Is it good news? 
Yes. It's great and glorious, praiseworthy news. But it's also something personal for us. If he's uniting all things, then he is also reconciling and restoring and redeeming you. God has a plan, a path, and a purpose to redeem you. And it's the greatest news that I've ever heard. I hope it's the greatest news that you've ever heard. If, it, if it's not news that you've considered before, it's the greatest news that you've ever heard, I want to talk with you today. I'm going to stand up here. I, I want to have that conversation. I want to be encouraged by what the Spirit of God is doing within you. Tell somebody about it. If it's not me, if that's weird and scary, go tell somebody about what God is doing. Go tell them about the greatest news that you've ever heard. But the better news, as I mentioned earlier, is that even you, even though you are included in that redemption, it's not all about you. Verse 6 says that all of these things are to the praise of his glorious grace. As I mentioned, verse 12 and verse 14, which we'll study next week, are for the praise of his glory. Throughout Scripture, we see that everything that God has ever done has a purpose. You included, the redeeming of you included, and it's for the praise of his glory. And that's the party that you're invited into. That's the story. That's the, that's the party that you've been written and invited into. Here's the last thing that I'm going to say. How do we know? How do we know that there's really a party that is being planned? Not for us, but that we are included in, that we are invited to, that we will be at in Jesus Christ. This is, get this. I'm about to read something. I'm about to paint a picture through God's word of something that you will be at if you are in Christ. This is not some like, oh, that's a nice story. You will be here. In Jesus Christ, you're going to be here. I'm going to read this glorious story out of Revelation 19. When I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, that's you. Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, has granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. There really is a party. There really is a story. You're invited. You're predestined as an adopted son to be there. And while Jesus is the groom, he is the center of the party, you have been invited not as a mere attendee, but as the bride. Man, it's great. It's not all about you, but I can't imagine a better story to be a part of. Let's pray to those ends.